listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. I recently had an email exchange with someone who was essentially um, mentioning that he just, he wanted to escape. Wanted to escape. That the, the world seemed to be crumbling around. That his, uh, uh, he had a relationship with his boyfriend that was, was falling apart. Um, I mean, right down the line. Um, was in a new job that he took because he had to. He hated it, you know. So it was really, I mean, I felt, felt bad for the poor guy. Um, and realized that we're all essentially just a few steps away from where he is, you know. It's very easy to feel very, you know, connected to somebody who's in, in that space. Um, but I was in the, uh, the position of trying to explain to him how uh, he's kind of a beginning meditator. And, and his whole point was, you know, I really, I, I want to get into this. I want to be able to do this well so that I, you know, I don't have to deal with all this stuff. And um, unfortunately, you know, I had to kind of give him the news that um, it doesn't quite work that way. That meditation actually exposes you. Meditation tears off your skin so that you are utterly and completely vulnerable, totally vulnerable to the world. (laughs) So rather than uh, meditation being an anesthetic, which it can be, I mean, anything can be an anesthetic. I'm still a sucker for dark chocolate. Anesthetic for me. Okay. I see horrific news. Boom, a few dark chocolates. And everything's okay in the universe for that moment. And I'm sure, actually, you may know this, but uh, neurochemically, dark chocolate gets nearly the exact same release in your synapses, you know, in that synaptic cleft right there, the same neurochemicals are released in the same combination, norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, as when you are in love. Hmm? Isn't that cool? <laughs> so, uh, so I'm a sucker punch for that. Yeah, just, I, I just, that's, that's an escape. Okay. It might be uh, cleaning. It might be consuming. It might be, uh, you know, good food. It might be guilt. Whatever it is. Anything can work as this type of anesthetic. Anything can work as an escape. Asking ourselves this question and letting a very honest response kind of percolate up bubble up within us is incredibly instructive when it comes to the deepest kind of work that we need ultimately to do.
Where is it that you hide? Do you hide here? Does the teaching, does another person allow you to hide? What is it and how is it that you hide? How is it that you work to escape? In the, the back and forth email exchange that I had with this guy, uh, it became readily apparent that he just wasn't sure, he's very honest about it, he just wasn't sure that maybe meditation was the right answer. And I said, it may not be. It really may not be. This takes a certain kind of steel, a certain kind of courage. And that steel, that courage is often inspired, believe it or not, by desperation. Nothing else has worked. So often what you'll find people, you know, saying, I think, well, you know, this is right. This is like one of the most intimidating things that happened to me as a, as a very young teacher. I'd been, you know, sitting in front of people for only like a couple of months. And I had this person that had been, uh, spent years and years with a meditation community with uh, a guru that was incredibly famous or infamous, depending on how you want to look at him. And then she went to another uh, particular organization that ran in all sorts of financial trouble and so forth. But she knew her stuff. She knew how to meditate. Okay? She had been doing this much longer than I had and so forth. And here she is kind of looking at me as teacher. I'm kind of like, you know, is this right? I don't know. I don't feel good about this. And she said, she looked at me. And then she just started to cry and she said, I feel like I'm at the end of my rope. And I have no idea why this came out, but it did. I said, excellent. Now we can start. Why the hell did I just say that? It's going on in my head. How do I start with this? How do I start unpacking and helping her to unpack her tradition of escape and its own inertia? How do we break this down? And it was very instructive. Um, worked out beautifully, <laughs> fortunately for me. I didn't screw up too badly. <laughs> Just go see a therapist, which works beautifully in conjunction with spiritual work. For any of you who are doing the, the double whammy, the therapy and the deep spiritual work, it's, it's beautiful. It really does some amazing things. Got the best of the West. Best of the East, fuse those things together, and what do we get? We get awareness that builds upon itself, begins to study the smaller, more egoic aspects of our being, and what do you get? A great symbiosis, a great combination, where you develop the courage to explore and study how you have always hidden, how you have always worked to escape. So what I would humbly submit to each and every single one of you tonight is stop trying to escape. You're not in prison. Alternately, you may not feel like you are in a space of utter, complete, and open liberation. That evolves. But it evolves first with the fearlessness necessary to recognize that you need to stop running. You need to stop running to things to help you, and you need to stop running away from things as a way of 
gaining a foothold on uh, uh, security. Can you shift that perspective so that it's not security that you're seeking, but cleaning off a different lens to look through, a way of seeing your life and the world that your life is meeting a little bit differently? Can you begin to really, really come in close, intimate contact with the things that are keeping you small? If you can. If you can, it may take some time and some patience. But if through a stillness practice you can kind of begin to continually expose yourself to this flame, you will find initially that the shedding of this skin makes you feel raw. But then something miraculously kind of happens. Instead of it being a callus or a series of calluses or shell, exoskeleton that grows around this rawness that we feel, something far more mysterious happens. And it's that we begin to, for lack of a better word, we begin to feel as if there's a certain lightness, a certain invisibility, a certain clarity that we begin to live from, live as, live through. And it all starts with stillness. It all starts with stillness. So, this transitioning from no escape into being utterly vulnerable is not, uh, it's, neither, it's neither easy nor comfortable. And it's something that several of you in this room may have either experienced a while back when you were starting uh, this process, either with us at Infinite Smile or somewhere else. Or it may be a place you haven't quite hit upon, but man, this is just one of those things that you, you find that in this work, there's a point of no return. There's a crossing of the Rubicon, so to speak, where you, you kind of hit this place where it's like, you know, I can't go back into that old skin. I can't, I just can't go into that space anymore. I, you know, we've become more and more and more aware and consciousness, folks, goes in one direction. It's, it's not a state in the way that I'm referring to it as. It's, it's got a, 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 a placement in our experience that's developed this odd, spacious permanency in how it is that we tend to meet the world. It tends to just, we become more and more aware. Um, best way I could describe this in Western terms is for any of you who have been to, uh, you know, a therapist, you may still be dealing with the same stuff over and over again, but there is a palpable progression to the work if the therapist is any good and you're showing up. Okay? It's the same thing with spiritual work that we find that there is just this, this, this opening that begins to occur and it goes one in one direction. Now, to give a counter to that, sadness is a state. Happiness is a state. They ebb and they flow. Happiness comes, it goes. Sadness comes, it goes. You with me? 
okay? Consciousness, though, tends to continually expand, like our experience as human beings continually expands if we let it. There are, of course, those cases of people who begin to ossify. Usually it's out of fear, and they begin to hold fast, become quite fundamentalist in their approach towards their living. Either it's scriptural, it's dogma, you know, it's this is how I see the world, damn it, and, you know, don't mess with me because I'm right, you're wrong, right? We lock in that space, okay? That's a great escape. To lock up is an escape. So, how do we undo this? What are the keys to unlocking this? And do we have the guts to turn them? When we begin to start recognizing that there is a point of no return, we see that there is only hiding or there is exposure. And our choices become imbued with this simple elemental fact. Are we going towards greed for more of something? That's hiding. That's escapist. Are we looking to ditch or escape? You know, quite, quite literally, are we looking to avoid? That's an escape. Okay? And we start seeing that those tilts, in whatever form they may take, always take us off center. If we are craving, for instance, more um, pleasure and less pain, you might say to yourself, well, this is really natural, isn't it? You know, the pleasure principle, that whole idea, you know, that Freud came up with, we go towards pleasure and we avoid pain. Yeah, yeah. How's it working out for you? If you're always going towards pleasure and you never want to face pain, you live precisely half of a life. How about if it's praise? You're looking for praise. Why? Why? You're looking to avoid blame. More praise, less blame. Both of those tilts take us off of our center. So we're never really grounded. In fact, someone who's always into that space of more praise, less blame, is continually going to be batted around in relationships. And we could go on and on like this. Okay? Think of some type of positive and then some type of negative experience, whatever it might be. Whatever it might be. And whenever we find ourselves kind of lurching towards, give me more of this, or running away from something, less of that, okay, we're looking at a life bound by attachment. Anybody else hot? I'm going to, okay, a little toasty in here. So greed and avoidance. Greed and avoidance. More cool air, less stultifying heat. All right? That doesn't mean you don't act to maximize, if you can, a feeling that you enjoy. It doesn't mean that you don't go for it. But 
do so mindfully. Do so with this just fundamental rule. Is this causing harm to self or other? It's a really cool little guidepost, a little compass, uh, you know, a, a way of finding our direction on this. And the encouraging words I'd, I'd love to give you here, um, uh, people that have gone through this process where they, you know, they hit that point of no return and they eventually come back into the world and it's, they feel like I described earlier, skinless. They feel everything more acutely, more intensely. And while this on the one hand is something that can be quite frightening, it's also really amazing the more they continue with the practice that while it might become more and more intense, they might actually feel the world more. They recognize, and I've said this a million times, but you'll, it'll do you well to hear it again. They feel everything more, but it begins to carry less weight. It matters less. Is there pain? Yes but it doesn't matter as much as it used to. It might even be more intense, but we're able to kind of let it drop away, knowing that it's going to be temporary. Is there more love? Yes, but it matters less. As a result, we don't grab onto it and then kill it prematurely. I would say, however... And this is not only from where I sit on the cushion, but something I've noticed within me, and I've had other discussions with teachers about this. Negativity, the negative emotions tend to fall away. Um, they don't carry nearly as much weight. Do they come up? Sure. Sure they do. But they tend not to stick. So anyway, this is just kind of a, you know, here's our situation. We get to this point of no return. Where we, can't, we can't turn back. There's no way I'm going into that old, I don't fit into those clothes anymore. Even if I'd like to, I'd love to live a life of, you know, blissful ignorance. Sorry, Charlie, not going not gonna to work anymore. You know too much. You've experienced too much. You are open so wide now that life lives itself through you differently. You don't have a choice. Now, I would encourage any of you who has not kind of hit this point yet. Um, this is, I, I recommend sticking it out. <laughs> um, because going back doesn't work. It tends to, we, we tend to just screw things up pretty immeasurably. So continuing on this path with complete awareness and more than anything else, courage is your destiny. It is the shortcut to awakening. Having a meditation practice, having a group, having a teaching, having a teacher, all of these things working together help the universe conspire to be able to see itself through you. And at this point, we become a gift to all beings. And it's not something you even think about. In fact, if you do, I'm a gift to all beings, <laughs> then you're in just real trouble. <laughs>
So how does this shift work? Uh, I don't know. I'm clueless. I have no idea. Um, but I would say that what, what kind of happens is we, we accept this partnership. We accept this partnership with what is. As opposed to being in any kind of opposition, we begin to, in essence, dance. And we do it in ways that ultimately demand creativity. They demand flexibility. It demands our love. <laughs> this, this partnership with what is, what I'm, what I'm kind of talking about here, is that we don't work so hard at picking and choosing. We're not so concerned with winning our inner Charlie Sheen has been kind of pushed off to the side or whatever. We're not so concerned with the winning anymore. It's more about being. Can I be fully? Can I be utterly and completely conscious? Can I enhance this deeply human experience that I'm having and in the process, give it away? Can I see that the love that I'm giving to myself is actually extended outward so that I can give it to all people. Can I see that the work I'm doing on me is helping everybody else out? It may or may not be making you feel better on any given day, okay? But it definitely is helping the universe along. You are that important. Your work is that important. None of this is about you, really. This is about this project called evolution. And you're a participant. You are a facet on this gem. And to be sure, it's helpful when that facet is wiped clean. Your job is to do the wiping, and you do it every single time you sit still. Every single time a dharmic choice comes up and you go towards non-clinging. You just lean a little bit. You start recognizing that you are indeed undivided. That you are part of a much deeper whole. Egos hate this recognition for obvious reasons. They start, you know, what do you mean? Well, ego, you are actually just a very deep thought. Screw you. I'm in charge. I'm driving. We are now going back to the old way. Yeah, but you can't really go that way. Well, I can try. Yes. Yes. But then we suffer. It's really, really interesting. As we start recognizing that we are indeed part and parcel with this whole. And we have characteristics of an individual... You know, we have this ability to reflect the light with other facets of the gem. Okay? So, in other words, there is, there is singularity, deep singularity, and that there is also individuation. When we start recognizing both of those things at one time, we can tap into a much larger toolbox, so to speak. We can build much more profound, much greater, much more powerful lives that don't require uh, a tremendous amount of striving. 
They do require, on the other hand, being. They do require that we meet this life, this very life of ours, with an awakened presence, recognizing fully that we are undivided. That we are space that is consciously dancing with itself. So as we begin to um, allow for this process to broaden and deepen us, let's say we give in to, we recognize we can't go back, okay? And so then we kind of get into this shift and we, we, we kind of just succumb to this idea that I'm going to dance with the universe as the universe, okay? There is this really fascinating thing that tends to jump up. Ego decides at some point that it's, it's really important that it somehow subvert this process. And so it gives its last stand. I can do this in a number of different ways. One of the most common ways I wanted to talk about tonight is that we can feel a very deep alienation. Very deep alienation from old friends, from partners. We can feel an alienation from everything we've held to be familiar. We can feel a sense of loss that I've somehow in this process, as I've kind of gone more deeply and deeply into the study of self and everything else, I'm somehow lost. And this is an echo of egoic clinging. The ego needs place. It's always looking for places of permanence, whether it's trying to establish permanence for something else that keeps it safe, that it can use as an escape, or whether it's establishing its own sense of permanence in our experience. And so what it'll often do is point out, say, hey, man, see, you, you, can't even, you can't even hang out with uh, family members or friends that you used to hang out with. You no longer have the same value structure. Something's wrong with you. You need to loosen up. Or you need, you know, this dialogue begins, you know, occurring. Uh, and this is just really, really, really common. Now, in some people, it's more intense than others. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a pitfall to watch for as you deepen your work cool thing is when we are able to establish spiritual friendships and it's one of the beauties of sangha it's why it's so sacred it's the sacred community if we look at buddha dharma and sangha we call them the three jewels as the uh, uh, the sangha start backwards sangha being the sacred community and the dharma being the sacred expression and the buddha being the sacred self if we can entertain those three jewels on some type of regular basis, we have something that can work to ground us. So what that can tend to do is, is undermine the ego's attempts at calling attention to these stories that generally elicit fear, which are, you know, those of alienation and those of loss. There's a deep fear ego has of its own loss, its own death. And so this can, this can just, you know, burst forth. Being aware of it actually helps this shift to kind of continue.
the, in other words, the awareness of it actually allows for it to, to uh, progress. So what happens then if we allow for it to progress? What is the opening, for lack of a better term? What does this opening um, uh, begin to offer? Well, um, amazingly, we can begin to relish and value uncertainty. We can begin to see that not knowing, as we talked about a few weeks ago, not knowing actually brings us closest to awakening. We think that knowing is something that we... Well, knowing is the act of mind. What's beyond mind is what we're looking at here. And what's beyond mind is not terribly interested in knowing. It's not terribly interested in anything. It just is. And then this isness, new word, isness becomes this amazing center of gravity for us. Being. From this place of uncertainty and our comfort with uncertainty, we begin to live lives of wonder. And there's only freedom in wonder. If wonder, on the other hand, is used as a bridge to certitude, then it's a bridge that leads us to war. If wonder, on the other hand, just leads us to more questions, to more wonder, then anything is possible. <laughs> Ready? <laughs> Got a few minutes for Q&A, if anybody's interested. Yes? How do you stop yourself from clinging when you see what you're clinging to? Yeah. How do you stop it? Well, the seeing <laughs> is what gives you your first step. Okay? So... Um, if you're talking about like stopping a behavior or are you talking about stopping the thought? Because I would rec recommend that behaviors are things that you, you do because you feel like you have no control. It becomes a compulsion, right? Um, the thought, on the other hand, is an obsession, so to speak. And thoughts, you're not trying to stop. You're trying to study. So in a weird way, any type of obsession that you have is leading you right into the heart of awakening if you let it, if you let it take you. Okay? You study the origin of that obsessive thought and you're going to get right to the core of all sorts of gold, so to speak. You're going to you're, you're get right into what it is that you feel you are lacking. Okay? And as we begin to study what it is that we sense that we're lacking, we start recognizing that the studier of this stuff is lacking precisely nothing. The ego is always lacking. 
As long as the ego is lacking, it guarantees its own employment. Right? Because it means it has to get something, which means it has to move. The ego goes after everything that moves and itself must always be moving. This is why we have what we call a stillness practice. Another way of saying it would be an egoless practice. When are you egoless? Well, in, in, when you are in the middle of stage three or stage four dreamless sleep, where's your ego? You're not dreaming. What are you? You're a chunk of biomass lying down on a pad. Right? You're a skin bag just sitting there. All right? But then somehow we pop back out of that space, that restorative space. So if we get into that restorative space consciously, okay, we do it unconsciously every night. Every 24 hours you go through the circadian rhythm where you, 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 your body does this to itself. Now what happens if we do it consciously in a meditation practice? We begin to actually study the obsessions consciously. And then the compulsion becomes a choice. And at that point it's no longer a compulsion. So what I'm telling you is watch the thought. I would recommend not doing the behavior. You know, it's especially true if, if, if you, for instance, like some people, man, alcohol is a poison to them. Okay? This work doesn't make everything okay, so, yeah, now I can drink again. Okay. No, actually, it's a poison to some people. Some people are able to actually work with it. If you can or can't, doesn't mean you're better or worse. It just means that different people have different ways of dealing with, you know, these types of things. I'm compelled to take that beer or whatever and they learn not to right they learn that it actually is killing them without a 12-step program sure i mean there, there are all sorts of people that i happen to be a huge fan i'm going to go on record a huge fan of 12-step 12-step shows people what i am showing them in many respects okay 12-step uh, I, I think there, there's some things that can get confusing for people who really weave their 12-step in with this, but, you know, we, through chatting about it, it tends to work itself out. Mm -hmm. Have you ever, um, do you remember that, remember the commercial for, um, help me out, the potato chip? You can't have just one? Yes. Lay's potato chips. Bet you can't have just one. Watch me. Watch me. Ka-chunk. Oh, that's good. Now, am I going to feel the compulsion to have another? Sure. Am I? Watch me. Okay? But to an alcoholic, no. To an, I know plenty of alcoholics that have said, watch me. And they, they've been sober for, you know, 16 years. Oh, but not 16 just one. They don't have one. They have none. Again, uh, I, I think that, that that's... Right. Okay, I think that you, you, for somebody where it's, it's toxic to them, yeah, absolutely. You know, you don't say that to, it's same thing with like, you know, somebody's on meth or something like that. You don't say, just one hit. Come on, come on, one hit. It, no, no. Which is exactly why we have the precepts, there, you know, in, in uh, spiritual work. Don't cause harm. If what you're doing is causing harm, don't do it. You know? It's not an easy answer. Okay. I mean, essentially what I'm saying is, you know, your question is how do you stop from doing 
which you know you shouldn't be doing. Uh, stop. That's like a profound spiritual teaching. You have to show some discipline. Okay? Whether you get it from a support group or exactly or your stillness. Exactly. And I would say integrating all of them together betters your chances. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck. By the way, we all have them. Okay. Yeah. I miss. Yeah. Hey, how's it going, Frank? This, uh, Michael, this question being three parts. First part is: uh, Is there a particular way to breathe while meditating? Is there one way, or my? Is that part one? Yeah, that's part one. Do you want me to answer it or do you want me to get... Yes. Okay, we'll go with part one. Is there a particular way to breathe? Um, I would say no. I would say there is a particular way not to breathe. No snoring. <laughs> okay? That's it. Breathing, I mean, I think there are, there are all sorts of different techniques that you can use uh, that, that people espouse. This is especially true in the New, a new Age movement of the uh, you know, 80s and so forth. Uh, different styles of breathing that, that can get you to different states and so forth. I have no use for any of it. I am, not, I am not one who says that there's a certain technique that you should or should not use, except I would not use sleeping. When I particularly meditate, I take it Mm -hmm. With my tongue, you know. Right. Up. Behind your teeth? On the top of my Right. Mm -hmm. And then after I take a deep breath, I pause for a while, then I let it out. Uh -huh. So it's not a, that's the way I do. Does that work for you? Yes. Continue. Okay. Mm -hmm. The second part is, is there... Uh, what is cosmic energy when you breathe, meditate? So when you're meditating, question is, what is cosmic energy? Okay, ready? Yeah. What is not cosmic energy? Everything is. Mm -hmm. Everything is the dance of cosmic energy. Okay. I would prefer to look at it as everything is a kind of cosmic giggle. <laughs> because that's the kind of energy that it feels like. That shimmer. Um, every time I uh, uh, have experienced that kind of oceanic spaciousness, I find that there are tears mixed with uh, very quiet giggling. So, it's all the cosmic giggle. It's all the cosmic dance. It's all an infinite smile. <laughs> you know? <laughs> does, this, does this make sense? Yes. Now, part three. Third part is when I do my meditation, uh -huh. and after the first, you know, two, three, four minutes, when I let my breathing out, then I feel this sensation like an energy coming. Sometimes it goes half of my body, sometimes all the way to my toes. Sure. It's kind of like feeling a charge coming. What is that? We have two energetic forces 
two energetic forces that tend to show up in uh, our work spiritually. One's ascending and one's descending. Okay? Um, I think uh, one's yin, one's yang. Okay? And depending on how you look at it or whose school you subscribe to, and I don't, um, I think that on the one hand, that energy and that experience is just more stuff to let go of. Because it can distract us. We can give it meaning. Ego is busy writing stories about it, saying things like, oh, there it is again, right? When in essence, it doesn't matter whether it's here or not. It's always this moment. So experiences, especially the positive experiences we feel in meditation on the cushion, can be real distractions if we're not careful because we, we cling to them. I want more of that, right? So while we might have this, you know, this, this descent of the many and the rise of the one in our understanding, that may be an expression uh, that, that makes some sense. Or we have grace that comes and lives itself through our bodies as we begin to meditate or whatever, whatever it is. All good, all fine, but all definitely things we don't want to cling to. Otherwise, we defile exactly where they're pointing us. Which is to the fundamental reality that that sensation, that experience that we're feeling is pointing us in the direction of what we truly are. But I definitely feel it. Great. It's just a feeling. And a feeling is something that shows up in your body in time. Therefore, it's temporary. And if it's temporary, it's not real. It does come. Great. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying don't confuse experience with reality. Spiritually. Are you hearing me? This is, this is really good. Do not confuse experience with reality. Okay? The fundamental nature of who and what you are is way beyond anything your body can experience. It's way beyond anything that your mind can conceive of. Okay, Yet, there's a tendency for us to hang on to thoughts or to hang on to bodily experiences thinking that they are actually it. When in fact, they are precisely not it. They're pointing us in a direction. Now we have to show the courage to actually go there. This stuff's good. It's juicy. It's fun. Okay, It's also just like heroin. And you will find people that will be busy just locking themselves into state experiences and they never let them turn into trait realities. I would encourage you to take that next step, which is to let it in, let it out, be. That's it. Be aware of it. Be aware of it. And your interior can always be in that place of wonder, comfortable with the gift but not trying to covet it. Yes. Um, you were talking earlier about observing your thoughts, and I've noticed that the more I'm doing this kind of practice, I think I actually have fewer thoughts showing up. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering if that's because I'm like less attached to thinking. 
or if I'm like really not even letting them in, you know, like I'm like, hmm, maybe I'm just blocking them from my consciousness. And so I'm just wondering, what do you think? I think a still mind tends to create a still mind space. Stillness practice creates a still mind. It just, I mean, we, we, the minute we have, the minute um, stillness practice begins to kind of settle itself within us, okay, the, the rat-tat-tat of the chattering mind tends to hush itself. It's a very, very natural thing. Again, part of the mystery. How does it work? I have no idea. I don't really care. What, what, is, what is powerful, though, is that you actually are able, with fewer thoughts, you're able to experience, assuming your awareness is still, you know, being enhanced, uh, you know, on a daily basis in some capacity. You are able to experience space between your thoughts more readily, more fully. And the minute you are in the space between your thoughts, you are in and supported by the present moment. The now is beyond thought. So, essentially, the minute the now begins to kind of supplant non-now, meaning future and past, is the minute we actually have a much deeper set of spacious recognitions throughout the day. And you'll also find, as you continue this more and more and more, that that itself becomes more radically expanded. That doesn't mean, however, that you do not participate this goes back to kind of what we were talking about. Participating fully from the now, okay, may require thought. It may not. But it does require presence, okay? So to hide in the present moment bliss, okay, or to escape into the now, to attach to non-attachment, so to speak, puts us into a useless space where we become spiritual couch potatoes, watching one channel of snow just oh. <laughs> how are you feeling fine and what does that person do they just yawn <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah thank you everyone thank you for coming thank you.